0: Last week we started the book of Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar had invaded the southern kingdom of Judah and taken the best of the young men captive and Daniel and his three friends were some of those taken captive. And we finished about verse 8 where Daniel had purposed in his heart not to defile himself. So he was brave enough to make a request to the chief of the eunuchs. And he was willing to take a stand so they wouldn't have to disobey God. Being faithful and obedient to God were more important than anything else to Daniel. And one of the main verses we looked at, one of the key verses for me, is uh, Daniel chapter 6 verse 10. When Darius the Mede was there and, uh, and all the important people went to him and said, Hey, you know, let's make a law that people can only pray to you for 30 days. If they don't, they get thrown into the lion's den. Then when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. So, Daniel is a picture, an example of someone abiding in Christ, and what we see in his behavior, his words and blessings are just the fruit of his abiding in Christ, of making his relationship with God the most important part of his life. And we also read last week, John fifteen five, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So Daniel and David and uh, Saul, or Paul, um, all people who have taken a stand for God and their purpose to make God number one. What did Paul say? I count all things as garbage. Nothing compares to knowing Christ. And they have decided they will, by the power of the Holy Spirit in them, obey the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, don't love anything else more than God. Make loving God, abiding in his presence and growing in your relationship with him the most important part of your life. Now, the book of Daniel is really good for today and you might say, well how's that because it was written thousands of years ago. True, but the conditions were basically the same. Daniel was a man of God in worldly Babylon. Babylon. Babylon is like a picture of the world, an evil world. And Christians are always God's people in the middle of those who do not honor and in fact oppose God. So we live in a world that does not honor and most of the time directly opposes God. So basically we are God's people living in an ungodly world and it takes a lot of courage and faith to go against the flow and to go against what the world is saying, and to obey God. So let's pray, and then we'll start reading in Daniel chapter 1. Father, I thank you for this awesome story of courage, and boldness, and dedication to you. I pray that we will be blessed as we look at how Daniel has purposed in his heart not to defile himself. And Lord, help us to purpose in our hearts not to defile ourselves. Not to replace our worship of you with anything else. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 5, just to get the context. So Daniel chapter 1, verse 5, and it says, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them. Three years, it's like a university degree so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies, and as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this manner, and tested them ten days. And at the end of the ten days their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar then the king interviewed them and among them all none was found like Daniel Hananiah Mishael and Azariah therefore they served before the king and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So, pick it up at verse 9. Now, God had brought Daniel into the favour and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. So, we alluded to this last week, but it's a big price to pay to become a slave. And Daniel has been made a slave of the king of Babylon. And possibly, we don't know for sure, but Daniel probably had to say goodbye to any dreams he may have had concerning a wife and children. And uh, he has no rights, no freedom, and no independence as a slave of the king. You just do what you're told. But notice that Daniel is not angry or resentful concerning his circumstances. Instead, he just keeps on trusting God. And there's an application for us here as we also are slaves. We are slaves of Christ. And I'm just going to read three verses for you. They're on the screen. They're all about us being slaves and what Jesus says about us being slaves. So the first one is Matthew chapter 20, verses 27 and 28. And it says, And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Uh, Matthew twenty-five twenty-one. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant, slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Notice how they don't use the word slave there when the actual word in the Greek is doulos, bond-servant. And in John fifteen twenty, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant, doulos, slave, is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will keep yours also. So, this is from the Voice of the Martyrs. It's one of the newsletters from a while ago. And I'm just going to read a little bit of it. To you, and it's all about the people of Khmu, Khmu. So they are the original inhabitants of Laos, and the Laotians look down upon these people as backward. Sometimes they even call them Ka, which means slave, an insulting reference to a time when the Khmu were taken captive by invaders. Now, The Camus didn't like being called slaves. But the Greek word for slave, doulos, is also the second most common word used to describe Christians in the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. The word doulos occurs more than 100 times in Greek manuscripts, second only to mathets, meaning disciples. It's difficult to find slave in most translations of the Bible. Why? because they're trying to water it down a bit, because slave is a very strong term. So, as a slave, we are not just a servant. What's the difference between a servant and a slave? Well, a servant, they might get paid for what they do, but a slave is bought for a price and is bound to serve his master. So, as a bought and paid for slave, doulos, I understand that freedom in Christ does not mean that I am free to serve Jesus only when I feel like it. So, remaining in Christ, being bound to him as a slave, to a master, provides true freedom from the desires and priorities of the world. It's like that song we sang this morning, I Surrender All. If I remain a slave to Jesus then I'm no longer a slave to the world. But if I don't want to be a slave of Jesus, then I become a slave of the world. And in 1 Peter 2.16, the apostle writes that although we are as free, we should live as slaves, doulos, or fully committed slaves of God. So what does it mean to be free? Does it mean that we are free from Jesus? <laughs> no. It means that we are free from sin and religious customs of men. Did you know that Jesus was not free? Jesus had to obey the Father. He came to do the will of his Father. And I, like Jesus, am a doulos. I follow what Jesus calls me to do. And we've read how Jesus used that for us in the New Testament. Now, why does the world get angry when we are slaves of Jesus and we are doulos and we are following him? Well, they persecute us because the world sees our commitment to following him as proof that it can never own us. It has no power over us. We have been bought by the blood of Christ. Our true freedom is being bound in a relationship with our Master and the world can never take this freedom away from us. And the Voice of the Martyr workers asked the Camus Christians how they felt about losing homes and being beaten because they are Christians. Because these people were really um, persecuted for their faith on the island of Laos there. And surprisingly, many of the Camus replied that these sufferings encouraged them. They said that their own suffering proves that Jesus is God because he told them in the Bible that Christians would be persecuted. So isn't that interesting? Christians would be persecuted. And Jesus told us that if you want to follow him, you will face persecution. So Jesus became a slave, took the nature of a slave. And we're going to look at that later when we take communion. And he submitted completely to the Father with unquestioned obedience in order to secure our salvation. We find that in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. And like Him, he requires us to be an obedient servant to him with an obedient mind and to complete the will of his father no matter what we may face. Now in the world, we're going to look like what? Losers, okay? Most of the time. But in Jesus, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. So like Jesus, we are more than conquerors through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are victorious over the flesh the world, and ultimately, the grave. So, whenever we Christians are insulted in the courts, the press, or in the classroom, we, like the, the the slaves, are free to rejoice that these attacks from the world prove that Jesus is God. We are free to ignore seemingly terrible consequences in order to share his saving grace and love with more passion. As loss of Jesus who are paid for with the price of his blood, he owns us, we are his, he is our Lord. So I thought that was a a really good little article about slaves and it really reflects Daniel's desire to submit to God. Now, what are the results of Daniel's courageous decision? Well, it says in verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and goodwill with the authorities. So did Daniel have to earn this? Did Daniel have to be really good? Did Daniel have to choose his words really carefully? Well, yes, he had to be obedient to do and say what God told him to say, but ultimately it was God who worked in the heart or hearts of the people in Babylon, the chief of the eunuchs and the king and so forth. And so God does not abandon those who stand for him. Daniel entrusted himself to God and God came through. But at the same time, as we talked about last week, it would be really tough for him being a 15-year-old in a strange land. And, And also into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Now, our obedience will open doors to new opportunities for greater obedience. Because imagine that... Daniel didn't ask nicely, Daniel started a hunger campaign or something like that. Then, even though God would have put this feeling of goodwill in the heart of the, the chief of the eunuchs, then I don't think that it would have had the same outcome if Daniel hadn't acted in a godly way, in a humble and sincere way. So, when we obey, then God will bless that obedience and there will be opportunities for greater obedience. And verse 10, And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So basically he's saying, if you don't eat the feast that's before you, you're not going to be as healthy looking as the others and then I will get in trouble. Now, just think about who Nebuchadnezzar is. He's a he's a tyrant. He's very, very proud, and he's not one to shy away from killing people. So if you don't please the king, you might lose your head. It's a very real possibility that you might lose your head. In the next chapter, we're going to see that because they couldn't interpret a dream, he was going to kill all the wise men. So verse 11, So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So here, Daniel is suggesting a plan, He's. Considering the situation through the steward's eyes, he's being compassionate, he's being understanding, he's being reasonable. And he's not going to let the chief of the eunuchs pay the price for Daniel's conscience. Basically, Daniel is willing to put himself and his faith in God to the test. So Daniel is reasonable. He's being polite and he's gone to the right person and said, "Let's, let's just try something. So, Daniel is compromising here. Is that right? Are you allowed to compromise? Well, he did compromise with the chief of eunuchs. But he's not compromising in an ungodly way. He's showing the wisdom of James uh, 3.17, the wisdom of God. So I'm going to put James 3.17 up. It says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield... And that means compromise. Full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. So basically, if we are willing to yield, we are willing to work with other people to achieve our goals, but also taking into account how we can do that without hurting other people. So in our everyday lives, we need to be willing to yield, especially in marriage, especially with kids. We need to be willing to yield. It's not just about getting our way and, oh, this is the right thing to do. I must do it. But let's, oh, how do we do the right thing? There's ways of doing the right thing. Now, and it says, without hypocrisy. (laughs) Now, Spurgeon said about this, without hypocrisy part, it is of no use for a man to say, I have made up my mind upon certain things, and to keep doggedly fighting over those matters, while at the same time the whole of his life he is unkind, ungenerous and unlovable. Yes, by all manner of means, be a martyr if you like, but do not martyr everyone else. So you can stand up for something really strong in one area and you know be zealous for something, but the rest of your life is not so godly and what you're basically doing is making life hard for everyone around you. Now, the vegetables. That refers to all kinds of grains and plants. It's not strictly just vegetables. So Daniel and his friends are on a vegetarian diet. And why? We mentioned last week that the king's table was not prepared in a kosher manner, and most likely the meat was sacrificed to idols. And Daniel is not being presumptuous here. He's not wrongly testing God in this situation, because he has both a command to obey and a promise to trust in Exodus twenty three twenty five. it says, So you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. So as a student of the word, Daniel would have read that verse, and he says, well, I'm not allowed to eat the meat. God is going to have to bless my food and my water. And God did. So Daniel 1, 14 to 19. So he consented with them in this matter. So the eunuch chief of the eunuchs, consented with Daniel and his friends in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of the delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So so he consented with them in this matter. This is the hand of God at work. The chief of the eunuchs had all the power in this situation. Daniel and his friends were completely at his mercy. Yet who's really in control? God is. God can move upon authorities. God can get things done. And their features appeared better and fatter. Again, this is the hand of God at work. There's no biological reason why a vegetarian diet should make them appear better and fatter. Maybe at best they could appear the same as the other Jewish young men who ate the king's food, but not better and fatter. So here's another miracle where God is stepping in and responding to their faith as they walk in obedience. And 17, as for these four young men, God gave them, notice that, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. So this is at the end of three years. So it's like a three-year degree in world etiquette. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. So you can't outgive God. Daniel and his friends gave themselves wholeheartedly to the Lord, and what happened? They found favor with both God and man. So when you give God everything, your energy, your talent, your money, your ability, he will not owe you one. He will give back to you exceedingly abundantly above all you can ask or think. Ephesians 3:20. Now, are there examples of this in the Bible? If you go to Luke chapter 5, Jesus wanted to use one of the fishing boats as a floating pulpit. And what did he do? He blessed them with so many fish that the boat almost sank. When the little boy gave his tiny lunch to the Lord, he was one of the 5,000 in attendance who were filled to overflowing. That's in Mark 6. When the widow gave her last bit of meal and oil to Elijah, she never lacked again. That's 1 Kings 17. So one of the great lies of Satan is to try and get us to think that if we serve God, we will be unpopular and ostracized. And often that's not true. Actually, we'll grow and experience the favor of God and men. Although, yes, we will face persecution. So as parents, we can show our kids the example of Daniel and his friends and say, here's some young men who refused to give in to the pressures and pleasures of the world, and they found favor with God and men as well. So again, yes, you will experience persecution if you give your life to the Lord, but there's going to be this beautiful quality about our lives and an attractiveness that comes only from walking with God. And people will respect you, even though they may not like you. And you'll be used in different ways. Verse 20. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. (laughs) Wow. So Daniel was probably 15 years old at this time and he lived until he was at least 85. So for the entire 70 years of the Babylonian captivity, Daniel was in a place of leadership and service because God had Honoured him. So, there's a long time to be a slave serving a pagan king. Now, I just want to come back to this thing where, because it, it says it twice in this passage here God gave them knowledge and skill. So, the special intellectual ability of Daniel and his companions was not due to their diet, but to the special intervention of the Lord. So, if God puts you in a particular place, He will give you the ability to do what he's asking you to do. So these young men, Daniel and his friends, gave themselves to the Lord in a remarkable way, and God blessed them in a remarkable way. And there's a quote from Billy Price. He says to his friend Edwin, If Christians would only give over and above their reasonable service, the Lord would give over and above the usual blessing. It's pretty good, eh? If Christians would only give over and above their reasonable service, the Lord would give over and above the usual blessing. And Daniel and his friends understood this principle, and God blessed them for acting out on it. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So what did Daniel have to do before God revealed visions and dreams to him? Well, he had to be obedient. He had to have purity of heart. Daniel didn't start out having visions and dreams and all this kind of stuff, but he sought the Lord, and because he was obedient, his obedience led to greater opportunities, and God blessed him in that. So, you might seem small now, like just, you know, not eating the polluted meat, sacrifice to idols, but remain pure, and God can use you in a greater way. So, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So, these young men from Jerusalem were immersed in the study of Babylonian culture, literature, and religion, yet they remained faithful to God. So, consider the works of the prophets like Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. They were not in vain. Alright, Jeremiah, how many people did he win to (laughs) Christ? No one. But, Daniel... At the end of his life, he's reading Jeremiah, and he's being blessed. Okay, So our legacy as a faithful Christian goes on. We might not see the fruit of it right now, but it will bear fruit. So they were in Babylon, but not of Babylon, these guys. They were in Babylon, but not of Babylon. And there's yet hope for our children in public schools. But we must make sure that we teach them to stand up for what they believe, to be able to defend the Bible and give a reason for the hope that is in them. So Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Now this is a long time, 70 years plus. He had a long successful career, but it was in the worst of circumstances. He worked for tyrants who thought nothing of killing their staff and advisors. His employer suffered the worst kind of hostile takeover when the Medo-Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire. So it wasn't a good place to be in that culture. People hated him. He suffered persecution. They wanted to get rid of him. But God protected him. And so Daniel and his friends show us that inner conviction, a desire to purpose, to serve God, and to submit to him, can overcome any outer pressure, and that God-honoring convictions yield God-given rewards. So that's the end of chapter 1, but I want to go through two things from the book of Daniel, two big pictures, which I think are really important. Daniel and his three friends are important, yes. Prophecy is important, yes, but there's a big picture in the book of Daniel, and that I believe is God is sovereign. And one of the important things in chapter 1, it says, The articles from the temple of God that Nebuchadnezzar put in the treasure house of his God. This is really important. I mentioned it a little bit last week. It sets up this battle between Nebuchadnezzar and God. Nebuchadnezzar was an exceedingly arrogant and boastful and proud man. And the conquests he made were understood by him to be proof of his superiority or the superiority of his gods, which he kind of considered himself to be a god anyway. So Jews boasted that their god, Jehovah, was all-powerful. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar believed that he was greater than God, Jehovah, because... He had defeated them. He had burned down the temple. And so in his eyes, putting the gold and silver cups and plates, etc., in the temple of his own God, is seen in Nebuchadnezzar's eyes that I'm better, I'm stronger. It seemed like in Nebuchadnezzar's eyes that he had won. He was better, he was greater than God. But, as in so many other historical situations, appearances are deceiving. So, actually, guess who was in charge of the overthrow of Jerusalem? Guess who planned it? God did. And if you read the scriptures, God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. My servant, Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't mean that Nebuchadnezzar is a righteous man. But God is using Nebuchadnezzar, whether or not Nebuchadnezzar actually understands that he's being used to do the will of God. It was God who had brought on the destruction, sending it as a punishment for the people's sins. So, this book of Daniel is God demonstrating his absolute sovereignty. And I'm just going to read a quote from someone. So, The principal theological emphasis in Daniel is the absolute sovereignty of God. At a time when it seemed to all the world that his cause was lost and that the gods of the heathen had triumphed, causing his temple to be burned to the ground, it pleased the Lord strikingly and unmistakably to display his omnipotence. The theme running through the whole book is that the fortunes of kings and the affairs of men are subject to God's decrees and that he is able to accomplish his will despite the most determined opposition of the mightiest potentiates or kings on the earth. And the miracles recorded in chapters 1-6 to demonstrate God's sovereignty on behalf of his saints. The surpassing health of Daniel and his three companions, the miraculous disclosure to Daniel of the contents of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, The amazing deliverance of Daniel's three friends from the fiery furnace. The warning to Nebuchadnezzar of the seven seasons of when he was going to lose his sanity and then it actually happened. The the writing on the wall with Belshazzar and, and the defeat of Babylon, as Daniel had just said, and happened that same night. And Daniel's deliverance from the lion's den all clearly show that The Lord God of Israel was in charge of the tide of human affairs and was perfectly able to deliver his people from pagan oppression during their captivity. So the great and most important theme, I believe, of Daniel is that there is only one God who is Jehovah and that he is sovereign over all the events of history. So big picture okay, is that God is sovereign It looks like God has been defeated. It looks like everything's fallen, failed, and everything's hopeless. But actually, God is in control. And Daniel is God showing us that he is in control. Now, the big picture too. Secular humanism or atheism versus God. And you might say they had gods, but listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says. So I'll tell you that in a second. So basically, there's a struggle between the world's way of doing things and the world's way of thinking and God's way of doing things and God's way of thinking, and that struggle prevails until today. And that's why Daniel is a contemporary book. It's a book for today because it helps us to live, gives us hints, clues, how to live in today's world. So... What was the chief characteristic of Babylon in Nebuchadnezzar's time? Well, it's secular humanism. What did Nebuchadnezzar say? He said in Daniel chapter 4 verse 30, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And you say, well, how is that secular humanism? Well, the statement is true in one sense. Nebuchadnezzar had built Babylon, and he undoubtedly had done it for his own glory. But in forgetting God, who had given him the authority to create such magnificence, Nebuchadnezzar was actually taking God's glory to himself. Like all secular humanists, he was saying that all that exists is of man, by man, and for man's glory. That's what the humanists believe. It's all, everything that exists is of man, by man, and for man's glory. So Daniel had to go through three years of training in secular humanism, so evolution and all the other materialistic theories that they would have had back then. And yet he didn't lose his faith. Why not? He was grounded in the Word of God. So parents, again, it's so important that we ground our children in the truth of the Word of God so that when they're exposed to the lies, they'll be able to defend their faith, have a reason for the hope that is in them, and be able to stand against while the wiles of fiery darts of the evil one. So at the same time, while the world is living by its own standards and for its own glory in opposition to God, there is another people who know God and honestly try to please him. And in this story, it's Daniel and his friends. Now, just like us, they are not the most visible people, and the kingdom they represent is not nearly so visible as the kingdom of this world. But they are a substantial difference. And in the final analysis, they are the only ones who make any real difference for good. So we want to be in Daniel's group. We want to be people who make a difference. We're all born into Satan's kingdom. But we can enter God's kingdom through the new birth, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. John chapter 3 verse 3. So the doors of that kingdom stand open for anyone who will enter in. The New Testament says of Abraham, another citizen of the heavenly city who lived for God in the earthly kingdom. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So we have two kingdoms. We belong to one, but we live in the other. And we can become a citizen of heaven by being born again. So next week we'll get into the first prophecy, the statue with the head of gold, which represents all world history, or especially in the world history in detail, up to the time of Christ and then in the end times. So now we're going to take him in together. So I'm just going to talk about having a humble attitude like Christ did when he died for us. So I'm just going to read Philippians chapter 2. It's a beautiful chapter. And just like Daniel was a slave to Christ, we're going to look at what it means to be a slave to Christ as we look at what Christ did for us. So Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 13. It says, have the attitude of Christ. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Yes. Any comfort from his love? Yes. Any fellowship together in the spirit? Yes. Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Yes. Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. So, Paul's told us what to do, but now he tells us why. Jesus, though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form... And the last bit, dear friends, you have always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I'm away, it is even more important. What does it say here? Like Daniel, it says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. It doesn't say work hard for your salvation. It says to work hard to show the results of your salvation. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. I love verse 13. Let's read it together. You ready? One, two, three. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Is that what God did for Daniel? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. God gave him the desire and the power to do it. So, work hard to show the results of your salvation. Purpose in your heart to obey God with deep reverence and fear. You're not working for your salvation, but working to show the results of your salvation, the results of obedience, the results of abiding in Christ, the fruit that comes from abiding in Christ. So, what does a bond slave in the Bible look like? What do they do? They depend on their master, God, for everything, okay? And they are willing servants, meaning they have willingly forsaken everything else. It's their own choice. And as Kezi was just um, mentioning, there's a picture in the Old Testament and what they would do if there was a slave and the master said, well, it's time for you to go. You've served your six years and it's the seventh year. You can go free. The slave would say, but I don't want to go I love you, I want to stay here, I want to be your servant. I love you, I want to spend the rest of my life here. I want a servant for love, for life. And that servant would be a part of that family. It would become a part of that family. They would be a bond slave. They would willingly give up all their rights and be completely dependent on their master. Not serving for money, but serving for love. And the third thing about being a bondservant, a doulos, is, as demonstrated by Christ, honor only comes after humiliation and suffering. We, as God's servants, need to understand that when we go through hard times, God has the greater or our eternal good in mind. God looks ahead to do for us what will benefit us for eternity. So the things we suffer now You cannot compare them to the glory that will be revealed to us later. So, as we take communion now, just think of Jesus humbling himself in obedience to God. Daniel humbled himself in obedience to God. God wants us to humble ourselves in obedience and we can abide and we can bear fruit. And we can be a blessing to those around us. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, Lord, for the opportunity to come before you now. Thank you, Father, for the example that we have here, not just of Daniel, but of Jesus as well. Willingly obedient to the Father. Help us to be willingly obedient to you, Lord. Lord, we know we're going to suffer, but Father, we know that After the suffering comes the honour. After we're humiliated and put down by this world, you will lift us up. And we look forward to the honour that we will receive in your kingdom when we will rule and reign with you. This is not for nothing. This is never for nothing. Lord, there's a grander purpose in your mind. And Lord, we don't see it, but we know what the result will be. We're going to be glorified with you and receiving new body and we're going to be serving alongside of you in a position of leadership and the people one day who persecuted us they will be bowing down to us Lord not to us personally but they'll be bowing down to you and we'll be next to you and so Father the tide will turn things will change but for now help us to hang on and help us to serve you with a willing heart to serve you to be a one servant, serving for love, for life. As so we pray these things in Jesus' name. And Lord, as we take the bread and the wine, we just thank you for them. We thank you for their mercy and your grace. Lord, your grace in giving us what we don't deserve, eternal life, adoption, all those beautiful things, freedom from sin, freedom from the power of sin, the Holy Spirit living in us. But Lord, also your mercy in not giving us what we do deserve, which is eternal punishment. So thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.